Amen. Well, if you, if you have uh, kids and you are utilizing our kids' ministry, we run that, and you may be seated, we run that through first grade, and uh, you are more than welcome to check your children in now. And uh, for those of you where uh, the children are remaining, we love having kids in the service, and so the kids are, are welcome here. We love, we love the noise, and so uh, don't, don't be shy about that. I would uh, just, by way of reminder, we do have a kids' bulletin that we produce for those that are um, the kids that are staying in the service with us, and they can follow through with, with even the sermon, and they can use the adult worship guide as kind of the cheat sheet, if you will, for, uh, to be able to take notes, and, and hopefully that will produce some good discussion just between you and your, your kids throughout the rest of the week. We have been working through our Confession of Faith, which is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith that uh, was a confession born in adversity, clearly articulating uh, key doctrines of Scripture, and, uh, and we have been working our way through just chapter 1 uh, of the confession and what it says as it relates to the Scripture, which is really just Scripture's testimony about itself. And this morning, I just want to read briefly to you paragraph 10 uh, of the confession in chapter 1 as it relates to the Holy Scripture. It says this, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to, to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. And so what we confess as a church is that the scripture is the ultimate authority and anything that's spoken, anything that's believed, anything that's asserted by any man is to be run through the grid of scripture because scripture is our only inerrant infallible rule of faith and practice. And so with that said, would you turn in your Bibles to the gospel of Mark? We have been here now for a few weeks and we're just kind of taking our time working through uh, John Mark's letter, again, that he penned between AD 60 to AD 70, uh, and this is going to continue to come up as we go through this book. He wrote this to Roman Christians, uh, so to Gentile uh, believers uh, that were experiencing suffering. They were experiencing persecution under the reign of a wicked emperor known by Nero, and we got a little bit into uh, just the character, just briefly, of Nero last week. But this week, uh, we're, the next couple of weeks, actually, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. My plan was to preach these two verses to you, and then I got stuck on the first few words and realized I didn't have enough time to get through it all. So we're going to work through this over the, the next couple of weeks together. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read our passage and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to, uh, I'm going to bring in the Gospel of Matthew to give us a little bit more details uh, that uh, we don't see in Mark's account. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll just make some observations of this text, depending upon the Holy Spirit of God to encourage us and to strengthen us and to give us, as we just declared, I mean, we, we just sang about uh, God speaking to us through His Word, through His written Word, right? If we want to hear God speak, 
The Holy Spirit testifies to us through the Word of God. And so as we're opening it this morning, as we've already opened it and we've read from it, uh, we can have confidence that the Holy Spirit is using, us, using it to shape us and to fashion us into who God wants us to be. And so this really is, we're looking at this this morning with eyes of faith, completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. And so we want to keep that in our in our minds as we anytime we open God's Word, but just by way of reminder before we read it this morning. So John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he, he penned these words. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you again that, God, you, by your spirit, inspired your word and that you've preserved your word. You've kept it pure throughout all ages, Lord, so that we can read it this morning. We can trust it and be changed by it. And so I pray that your, your spirit would warm our affections for you. God, we're so we can so easily grow callous. We can so easily, easily grow cold. We can so easily just look at these things as routine and something that we do, and God, prevent us from getting there. And for those of us that are there this morning, God, yank us out of that state, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, we see from this account as well as in, in, in uh, we, we, we see the preaching ministry of Jesus beginning, okay? And, and we also get uh, a, a bit more detail in both Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. So we see in Matthew chapter 4, also in Luke chapter 4, and I'm not going to read Luke 4 for us this morning, but like last week, I'm going to utilize Matthew's um, account to uh, help us see a few more details here. And so you can flip over to Matthew chapter 4, particularly verses 12 to 17, or you can look up here at the screen. I think we've got it here as well. I'm going to bring this in for us. We see Matthew's account go this way. He says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtalia, that it may, might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, quote, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalia, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, and this is a significant phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles, Verse 16, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right, so, so some time has passed for us between Christ's temptation, this, this uh, this meeting that he had, we saw last week with Satan in the wilderness, to what we see here now is the public 
preaching ministry of Christ Jesus. And some scholars believe that John the Baptist and Jesus uh, were doing ministry together, and, and that that's why we have is this introduction to, to the preaching ministry of Jesus. We have this uh, brief comment about the arrest of John, is that John is now having to go another way by no fault of his own, right? He's been, he's been arrested and, and he's, he's, in, he's in, there in prison and we'll pick up with John in a, a little bit later uh, as we keep going through the Gospel of Mark together. But Jesus, he departs then to Galilee to preach the Gospel. And, and that's interesting. That's, that's for us. That's, that's more significant, I think, than we perhaps realize. And for, my, for, for our purposes this morning, I would really like us to just spend time considering the spiritual significance of Jesus departing to Galilee. That's actually kind of what I'm going to focus on, are those words, Jesus came to Galilee, four words there. Now, Galilee, it was the type of place, it wasn't the type of place really that, that you would expect for the Messiah to go, perhaps at all, but you especially wouldn't expect the Messiah to go there to begin his preaching ministry. It's not the place that you would think the Messiah would go and begin first to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. It was more so a place to be avoided, not, not one to move toward, not one to make movement toward. It was a place that was even looked down on by the religious leaders of the day. And according to, to human logic, there, there would have been much more kind of seemingly strategic and even public places and, and respectable places that Christ could have began his preaching ministry, like Jerusalem, for instance, would have been a public and respectable kind of prestigious place for the, the Messiah to go. Right? Galilee... It, it wasn't what you would call a resume builder, okay? It, it wasn't a re resume builder, and it, it, it didn't really, um, it, it didn't from a human wisdom perspective speak well to even the credibility of Christ. But, but just as Jesus came into the world in a way that seems backwards to us, according to our own wisdom, right? As a baby, Christ came in the incarnation, and just as Christ's kingdom came and is, def and is growing in a way that seems backwards to us, like a mustard seed into a large tree or like a little leaven leavening the whole lump. And really just as gospel logic is the antithesis of what we think in our own wisdom, is, is the antithesis of what we think in our own wisdom, which is lose your life to find it, or the last shall be first, so Jesus began his preaching ministry in Galilee as something that was completely foreign to human wisdom. And I don't want us, again, to gloss over why it's significant that Christ came to Galilee, right? Why, why he specifically began his preaching ministry in Galilee, because this was a big deal. It, it made waves in the first century. We see, for instance, in John Chapter 7, verses 40 to 44, we see that a dispute arose about this very thing. Quote, 
Therefore, many from the, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, and this, this saying being that Jesus was, was calling himself the living water, that's the context of, of John chapter 7, they said, truly this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, and remember, Christ means Messiah, or it means anointed one. But some said, will this Christ come out of Galilee? Will he come out of Galilee? Right? And, and this is more of a derogatory comment. It's a prophetic analysis as well, but also it's a derogatory comment. And they go on, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, which is where we know Christ was born, where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, that is to to harm him or to kill him, but no one laid hands on him. Right, so this place called Galilee, it, it did cause a dispute. It did make waves. There was controversy surrounding it. It didn't, from a human wisdom perspective, boast well of, of, of authenticating Christ as, as the Messiah. Right? It was controversial. It was this point of division. Right? Now, Galilee, in the time of Jesus, it was a type of, of cosmopolitan, if you will. It was a, a collision of cultures. Think of it as very syncretistic. It was kind of the melting pot, if you will, of various religions. And honestly, I kind of think of it, it, it it's not a complete, uh, com, uh, there's some points of divergence here, obviously, but when we went through uh, the book of Esther, right, and we saw the Jewish people with their weak, and they were spiritually anemic, they were living and intermingling amongst, they were willfully living in Babylon. We kind of see uh, some similarities here as it relates to Galilee and this sort of melting pot of religions and religious commitment. And there, there was a trade route at the time that helped to contribute to this sort of cultural collision. And that trading route at the time was known as uh, the way of the sea, which is the phrase that we see in Isaiah's prophecy that Matthew quotes that I just read to you a moment ago. One ancient writer said this, said that Galilee was on the road to everywhere. Galilee was on the road to everywhere. And as I said, it was a syncretistic society. It was that place where Gentiles and Jews would intermingle in all the worst ways. Okay, It it was a place where the spiritual lives of the Jewish people were extremely weakened. It was the place that, that there was intermarriage with pagan worshipers. So this expression in Isaiah's prophecy that I asked you to to pay attention to, or I made note of a moment ago, the Galilee of the Gentiles speaks more about the moral condition of Galilee than anything. In fact, just let me read it just quickly again with a little bit more of this context that we now have, because Matthew's quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to two. He says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Those in darkness have seen a great light. Christ He's going in our text this morning to preach the kingdom of God to a dark place. And just as we see Christ being born 
and the location and the lineage of Christ being a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, as we read the prophecy of Isaiah here, him going to Galilee, the light going in the darkness is just as much of a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the birth of Christ. Now, one commentator says, says it this way, the fact alone that Jesus so accurately and completely fulfilled Old Testament prophecy should be enough to convince an honest mind of the Bible's truthfulness and authority. Just as Isaiah had predicted eight centuries earlier, the despised, sin-darkened, and rebellious Galileans were the first to glimpse the Messiah, the first to see the dawning of God's new covenant. Not might and beautiful Jerusalem, the queen of the city of the Jews, but Galilee of the Gentiles would first hear the, message, the Messiah's message. Message, Not the learned, proud, and pure Jews of Jerusalem, but the mongrel, downcast, non-traditional, mixed multitude of Samaria and Galilee had that great honor. To those who were neediest and who were most likely to recognize their need, Jesus went first. He went first. So take a step back for a moment. And let's just remember the recipients of John Mark's gospel. Roman Christians, right? Gentile Christians. Mark, he's writing to these suffering believers under the persecution of Nero, and he says to him four words. And these were the four words I couldn't get past just with that context in my own study and why I felt that we needed to camp out here. These four words of comfort that Jesus came to Galilee. He came to Galilee. If we let that roll around in our head for a moment, right? if we let that roll around in our heart for a moment, which is another way of saying, let's meditate on this for a few minutes. Right? Jesus came to Galilee. Right? And as we meditate on this for a few minutes, as Deer Park Fellowship, think for a moment, a thought experiment for us to, to be engaged this morning with a sermon. Think for a moment about the worst sins you've ever committed. Just go ahead and think about them for a moment. Think for a moment about the very worst meditations of your heart. Think of the, the harmful, careless words that you've spoken to those that you've loved. Think for a moment of those things that you're most ashamed of in life. Those things that you wish you would have never done. Right? Those things that you're tempted even to believe disqualify you from being eternally secure in Christ. I think, just think about those things for just a moment. All right, these are the things that the accuser, our enemy, who's, who's the devil, brings to your mind to tell you that you can't be redeemed. All right, these are the things that he uses to make you doubt that, that God could ever love you. There's this lyric to a song that I love. That in, in the lyric goes, I had a dream that I was waking at the burning edge of dawn, which, which he uses as the... Uh, to illustrate the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And so he says, I have a dream I was waking at the burning edge of dawn, and then I could finally believe the king had loved me all alone. Right? It's the haunting of our past sins that Satan likes to use to make us doubt the infatigable love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Right? These things that I'm, that I'm asking you to, to think about for a few moments 
There are also things that make you think perhaps that you'll never do any spiritual good in this life. And when, it, when you think of them, which maybe for some of us are, is quite often, it robs you of your joy. It robs you of your joy. Right? And, and I'm not asking you this morning to think about these things because I want you to despair. <laughs> right? I don't, I, don't, I don't want you... That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm attempting to do by having you think about these things. All right? I, I'm also not asking you to think about these things to dishonestly and and damningly comfort you and tell you that your sins aren't that bad, that my sins aren't that bad. Right At the time of confession of sin, right, we were reminded our sins really are heinous. They're treasonous against a holy, righteous God. But I'm asking you to hold this stuff in your head for some reasons that we see in these four words that I just want to spend a few moments just breaking apart. And again, and for us to just meditate our way, and and perhaps these these next six days as we are at the beginning of a new week, we think through slowly in our own walking with God. I want us to see how the phrase, Jesus came to Galilee, can be immensely, immensely comforting to us. The first thing we see just in that statement alone, if we're breaking apart, is the reality that Jesus came. Jesus, he really came, really came. The people of Galilee, they didn't come to him. They didn't come to him. He came to them. Christ is the first mover. He's the first mover. The Roman Christians, the recipients of of Mark's gospel, knew this because it was the very reason that they were saved. It was the very reason that they were Christians. Christ came. You and I Apart from the intervening work of God, we did not come seeking Christ. Right? It may seem like you came seeking Christ, but you're very coming to him. And his invitation for you to come and to find rest, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, is because he first came to you. Right? We love him because he first loved us. Right, first John four, nineteen. Right, our loving, our our very capacity to love is made possible because love incarnate came to us. Right, kids, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what makes Christmas Christmas. Right, that that God came in flesh. That He added, He became truly man. He added that to His deity so that He could come. Right, our Messiah, our Savior. He left glory, he left heaven, and he moved toward us according to the mercies and kindness and unchangeableness of our triune God. That's glorious. That's glorious. So Jesus came. He he came as the bread of God to give life to the world, John 6, 33. He, He came to fulfill the law of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He came to glorify the Father. John chapter 12, verse 27. He came to testify to the truth. John chapter 18, verse 37. He came to preach the gospel of God. Mark 1, 38. He came for judgment on those who would reject him. John 9, 39. He came to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1, 15. He came to serve and to give his life as a 
ransom for the many, Mark 10, 45. He came that we may have abundant life, John 10, 10. He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. He came to bring light to a dark world, John 12, 46. He came to receive worship. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 2 and verse 11. He came to bring great joy, Luke 2, 10. He came to die, John 12, 24 to 27. He came to give us the spirit of adoption, Galatians 4, verse 6. He came to be the great and the second Adam, Romans chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. He came to be a merciful and faithful and eternal high priest, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. He came to begin the process of restoring the Imago Dei in us, the image of God in us. Luke 1, 35, he came to reveal the glory of God. John 1, 14, and he came to reign as king. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, and Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came. He came. And we don't need to get over that. We don't need to grow callous to that. And so we also, and the reason why it's beneficial for us to think through those very things that haunt us, right? those past sins that haunt us, some of the worst parts of our story, is because not only did Jesus come, but Jesus came to Galilee. He came to Galilee. That's what this whole message has been about. Right? He sought out. He didn't just come, he sought out the worst of sinners, Jesus sought out the worst of sinners, right? He came to the worst of sinners. He saved the worst of sinners. In fact, we see elsewhere in the Bible that Christ saved the worst sinner who ever lived, according to Holy Scripture, which we know is who? The Apostle Paul, right? 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus. Right? We looked at this when we went through the book of 1 Timothy together. He says, this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And get this, at the peak of the spiritual maturity of the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life here, this is how he thinks of himself, of whom I am chief. He came to save sinners, Paul says, of who I am chief, the worst the leader of the bunch. Right. was voted in his high school most likely to be the worst sinner who's ever lived, right? What I'm impressing upon us this morning is, is really, if we're looking here, the words of the Apostle Paul, something that I, I can't prove this, but I would think would come to the minds of the Roman Christians receiving these words from John Mark. So we, we, need to, we really need to adopt this mindset. Right? The, the saying that was common during the ministry of Paul and Timothy was Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that was immediately comforting to Paul. It was comforting to Paul. And he would comfort himself by doing exactly what we're doing here this morning. Paul, he would comfort himself and thus humble himself by remembering who he was apart from the intervening work of Jesus Christ. In fact, we have Paul's testimony prior to coming to Christ, kind of a shorthand of it. We see in Acts chapter 22, verses 4 to 5, this is, this is Paul apart from Jesus. I persecuted this way, Paul says, which this way was what Christianity was called at, at the time, this way, to the death. 
to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders for whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Right, Paul's own consideration of his story led him to the conclusion that he, he was the worst sinner ever. Right? But if we do a brief survey even of our heroes of the faith as recorded in Holy Scripture, we see thankfully that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God did not spare the sins and the foibles of those characters that we know about all throughout Scripture. Right? The fathers of our faith did terrible things. They did inexcusable things before our holy triune God, which means we're in good company, right? We're, we're in good company, right? That's not an excuse for us to treat sin lightly. What it should do is increase our gratitude for the, this bottomless ocean of grace that's solely a gift from God and His kindness and His goodness to us. Because all of this consideration of sin, all right, our consideration of sin, Paul's consideration and conclusion that he was the worst of sinners, it really would drive us to despair. It really would drive us and should drive us to an eternal hell, a wage that we've all rightly earned except for the fact that Jesus came to Galilee. That's what's standing in the way. To put it another way, your kids, for those of you utilizing children's ministry, are going or doing family worship with us throughout the other six days of the week, going along with the family worship plan. You have been memorizing this verse in, in family worship, Luke nineteen ten. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. So are you a sinner this morning? Are you a sinner this morning? I'm a sinner. Are you a sinner this morning? If you look at yourself and you characterize your past as one of being lost, as you look back on things, if, if you know, truly know, that you'd be doomed forever apart from the intervening work of Christ, then believer, he came to seek you and save you. He came for you. Maybe you're not in Christ this morning and you're feeling the crushing weight of your sin. And you know that the way out is not trusting in yourself. Christ came to save you. You can be saved this very morning. Christ came to Galilee to save the worst of sinners. And in contrast to this, if you think you have no sin, or if you think God, our holy God, the creator of the cosmos, if, if you think that he's overreacted to what you label as your mistakes that you're doing okay, and you're not grieved by your sin, I tremble for you. I tremble for you. Because Jesus spoke of those who thought that they were doing okay. In Mark chapter 2, we'll see this in a few weeks, the second part of verse 17, he says, those who are well, and you guys know this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Right? Jesus didn't come to save those who think they're healthy. He didn't come for those who think they're righteous. 
right? And, and here's why I tremble for those of you that think you're doing okay. You're not doing okay. You're not doing okay. If you think that you're, you're doing okay apart from Christ, you simply aren't doing okay. The Bible teaches us that there's none righteous. There's no, not one righteous, that all of us together have turned aside. We see that in Psalm chapter 14. We see the Apostle Paul quoting Psalm chapter 14 to the Roman church in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. But for those of you who feel desperate, and those of you who know well your state apart, again, from the intervening work of God, those of you who have felt heavy burdened and, or who now feel burdens, anxieties, right? Jesus came. He came. Right? He, he came to Galilee, and that means that he came for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the reminder of your your goodness in seeking us and saving us. And thank you, Lord, that we can rest in the finished work of Christ alone for our salvation. So, Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened by that and that we would be comforted by that. And I pray this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, just a few takeaways for you that you can find in your 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 bulletin, so you don't need to jot this down. But the first is this. Jesus came to you, which means that he sought and he saved you. If this is true, and it is, it means he'll never leave you. Secondly, there's no sin that disqualifies you from the grace of God when you respond in repentance and faith in Christ. And third, the gospel is for the worst of sinners, therefore come our takeaways for this morning. But this is the time in our service. It's the culmination of our service where we come to the Lord's table. If you're a guest with us this morning,